Please be seated. Amen. Amen. Go and have a seat and get your Bibles out. To 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11 uh, is where we're at this morning, continuing through our sermon series uh, in and through the book of 1 Corinthians, Messy Church. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 11, let me take you back. The year is 2003. Uh, I am student teaching in a very uh, normal, regular uh, elementary school in Muncie, Indiana. And uh, I had the privilege of student teaching in a fourth grade class. And right across the hall from me was another other fourth grade class that that would not have been a privilege to student teach in. That was a rough group of individuals. Uh, and if you've ever taught at all, you know that from year to year, there's just kind of different dynamics. I think that was the early retirement plan by the school for that particular lady uh, was that group of children. But uh, anyway, one particular day I was walking from uh, the front office back to the classroom <clears throat> And there was uh, just an an, an inordinately loud and chaotic uh, noise and ruckus that was coming from the room. And so as I got closer to the room, uh, I I, I was just partly curious, but also partly concerned. And so as you could begin to see through the door what was unfolding in the classroom, uh, it was chaos. This looked like the scene you would see in a movie that would depict uh, someone who has absolutely lost control of the classroom. Uh, kids are uh, up. Some, uh, there was a kid standing on uh, his chair. Kids are running around the room. They were throwing things. So of course I move into the room and probably the most shocking thing was there was no adult in the classroom. And, and so I was like, Whoa, what's going on here? So, so I just said without even thinking, I said, who's in charge in here? And there was this little boy named Tyrone and, and, and he was part of the mastermind in the chaos. And he just looked at me and he said, not the teacher and went right back into what he was doing. And I often think about that moment. And I think how for those kids in the, in that class, what they thought was freeing for them, what they thought was helpful for them, that chaos and and this sense of, Hey, we're in charge. When in actuality, not only were they not in charge, Even this sense of freedom that they had wasn't really freeing. It actually was to their detriment. And it's not at all unlike the situation and the scenario that we come to in 1 Corinthians 11. Because what we see on the surface of 1 Corinthians 11 is really symptomatic of a deeper issue. And that issue is in the church, these two different items that Paul's going to talk about with respect to head coverings and the Lord's Supper, which you look at those two things and you go, what in the world do those two things have to do with one another? How do they go together? These can't possibly go together. And yet what we're going to see is they're connected under the singular item of God's headship, God's rule, God's authority over God's people. Because the church, much like that classroom uh, back in Muncie, Indiana, was shirking the responsibility that God had for them, was that, that they were pushing against the role of, of an authority over them, and the church is pushing against God in this manner and in this way. They want to rule themselves. And so that the issue that's going to present itself to you and I today, loved ones, is will God's word have the final say in the lives of God's people? Will we be driven by God's word or will we be driven by cultural influence? The deeper issue of what's happening here is who is in charge. And so because of that, what I think God's word is going to draw out for us and point us towards is this idea right here. That because God is our head, 
because he's the ruler, because he's in authority, because he's the one that's in charge, because God is our head, we allow God and his word to drive and determine our worship of him. See, the presenting issue of 1 Corinthians 11 isn't whether or not we should wear head coverings or what kind of fashion statement do we make or the best practices for the Lord's Supper. The presenting and prevailing issue here is, is God in charge or are we attempting to be in charge? And these two items that Paul is talking about are simply symptomatic, the manifestations of that heart issue. And so before we go any further, I think we would be wise to stop, to ask God to give us wisdom and discernment and and, and to do the very thing that that God's word is going to drive us to, that we would humble ourselves, submit ourselves to God's word and his truth and have his way with us here this morning. So why don't you pray with me and then we'll get into this text. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you, God, for your word. God, we thank you for your uh, authority and headship over us. God, we thank you that you you rule and you reign. And God, we pray that that wouldn't simply be lip service, that wouldn't simply be something that we say, but it would be something that we believe, something that we hold tightly to. And God, maybe even there needs to be a corrective measure for us here this morning. And so we submit ourselves, we entrust ourselves to you and to your care, asking you to have your way in and through the lives of your people. God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And so I pray for Mike Potter and for Foothills Fellowship. Thank you for that brother and that faithful servant. God, thank you for that body of believers. And we pray that they would be submitted to you, God, that they would willingly come under your rule and your authority in their lives and that you would have your way in them in the same way that we desire that you would have your way in us. So God, we ask you, that your spirit would be free to move and work within us and amongst us and speak truth into us and over us, and that we'd have the humility to sit under that and respond accordingly. So we're here saying, God, you're in charge, we're not. Come and speak to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is Who's in Charge Here? Who's in charge here? Which is a legitimate question based on the things that we're going to see in the text. And as I've already mentioned, there's really two distinct items uh, that Paul's going to engage in this broader scope of corporate worship that's going on here. Starting in chapter 11, we'll actually run through uh, chapter 14. Uh, But looking at these two items in chapter 11 of head coverings and the Lord's Supper. And and so as we look at these, and and again, uh, the, the connection between these two items is around God's rule and his authority and his headship over over his people. Uh, but as we look at them, uh, we're going to spend a decent amount of time laying the groundwork and moving through the argument uh, in the first half of the chapter because there's a lot of cultural dynamics that are at play here and some things that, that, that we need to make sure we're understanding correctly. But it will help us to see the broader issue of God's headship and authority in our lives. And then in the back end, we'll get to uh, the Lord's Supper and then finish by sharing that with one another. But really by way of maybe introduction or preface, a couple things that that I think are important for us with respect to a text like this, uh, particularly uh, on the item of head coverings. First of all, just understand that there's some ambiguity to some of the stuff that's going on here in the text. And and it's not just cultural ambiguity, there's interpretive ambiguity. There's some things here that we go, you know, we think maybe it means this, but we're not entirely sure. There's some things that Paul assumes his audience knows 
was, and I'm sure that they did, but we're not part of that original audience. So we just don't fully know some things. And because of that, my encouragement is that you would just hold open-handedly what you choose to do with what God's word uh, speaks into your life, understanding that you might have a brother or sister who's going to respond differently. Some of you might walk out of here today going, I think I need to wear a head covering. Others of you might be fully convinced, I never ever will wear a head covering ever again. And that's fine. We want to be able to hold that open-handedly. Secondly, When we think about uh, this text, and again, specific to the head coverings, I think there are some really uh, negative or harmful ways that we tend to come at a text like this. And then I think there are some helpful ways uh, before we get into it uh, of how we should look at a text like this. So here's a couple of harmful ways and approaches that we tend to have with texts like this. First of all, we look at this and we go, head coverings? Like who in their right mind wears a head covering? That's, that's old school. And so what we say is we go, it's not relevant. Now, maybe the actual practice of wearing head coverings, I mean, I'm looking around the room. I'm, I'm not even seeing much of anything that could, that could even pass for a head covering. Okay, so, so most, if not all of you, have already kind of tipped your hand uh, in terms of where you land on this. Some of you might be like, head, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. This is all brand new to me. I, I'm learning right now, Mike. Okay, but some of us, we, we just say, well, it's not relevant. Might be irrelevant, but the underlying issue is incredibly relevant. So we, we, we can't just skip this or ignore it because then we miss this deeper issue of God's headship or authority. I think even more harmful and problematic is that when we come to a text, especially like this, we have the temptation to read this as if Paul wrote it last week and that he wrote it to us. This was written not to a Western 21st century group of people. This was written in the ancient Near East in the first century. People that think and function very differently than you and I do. And so we can't just say, oh, this was written last week and and, and apply it. We have to go, okay, this was written to a different group of people. We need to understand what it meant to them then. See that in light of the cross and then make application from that. But if I just look at it and go, well... It's written to me today. It was written to the church. It was written for us. We tend to look at this and let's just be honest. We're going to go, this is culturally problematic. You might even read some of these verses and be like, this is misogynistic. I mean, could you see any of the the, the main uh, stream media outlets reading this without snarking or snarling or talking about what's wrong with Christianity? I don't think you could. And so we say, well, let's just get rid of it. Let's abolish it. Let's eliminate it. Now, listen to me, church. This is God's word to God's people. And so whenever you come to a text that you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around, it might be that you're misunderstanding what God is trying to say. It might be that you want God's word to justify your sin, which it will never do. But definitively, here's what's never the case that God somehow got it wrong. That has not happened. So we don't have to look at 1 Corinthians 11 and go, you know, I wonder if he really thought 2,000 years in in America, like this just doesn't play, God. Uh, So maybe, no, okay, God didn't get it wrong. He just didn't get it wrong. God always gets it right. And so as we come at this, we need to understand that while our culture may struggle with this, 
Part of our struggle might be that we don't actually understand what Paul's really saying here. Because the argument that this is misogynistic or this devalues women, not only is it a bad argument, I would argue that it's wrong with respect to what Paul's saying. In fact, I think as we move through this, what you're going to see is this is highly liberating for women and places great value and emphasis on women. Quite the opposite of how we might be tempted to read this. So here's maybe some helpful ways that we should look at this. Let me give you two. One of them is that we might look at this and see this as being prescriptive. And that means that you might read this and realize, okay, God is saying this to me. God is telling me to do this. When God prescribes things in the scripture, he's saying, okay, you're supposed to do this. So some of you might come out of here and go, I think I need to start wearing a head covering. Great. Do it. Others of you might see this and go, I don't think it's prescriptive. It's principled. And that means that I need to engage and apply what's going on in this accordingly. And again, we might land in different spaces. That's, that's okay. I'll, I'll just tell you that even amongst the pastoral staff, there's not agreement on this issue. And so we can be unified even though we have a distinct opinion on this matter. But the ultimate issue isn't whether or not we should cover our head. The prevailing issue is whether or not I'm submitted and subjected to the authority and the rule of God in my life. So with that in mind, let's get into this. Let's start to work through this. And these two sections, uh, starting with the one on head coverings, and I just wrote this down to capture the totality of verses 2 through 16, that we worship under the headship of God. We worship under the headship of God. Now bear with me, uh, because I'm going to try to walk through all that Paul is saying here. Lots of information, lots of culture, try to help us understand this. And then we'll make some application, or at least the majority of applications will show up on the back end uh, of this section. But three things specifically, look at verses 2 and 3. The first thing that we see here, uh, uh, worshiping under the headship of God, is we see God's gift. And I would argue it's God's good gift, God's kind gift that he gives to us in headship. Look at what the text says. Now I commend you. Okay, stop. Paul's about to say something good to the Corinthians. That has not happened very much in this book, right? So it's kind of like, oh, something good's coming. Let's enjoy it. Uh, Okay, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Yay, something good. Verse 3, but, all right, it's over. Uh, Back to work. Verse 3, but I want you to understand. Now, here's what Paul's saying. He's not saying you're totally wrong. But he's saying, hey, I want you to understand, you don't fully get it. There's something that they're missing. There's something that's incomplete. There's something that's skewed or flawed. And then he gives not one, not two, but three examples of headship. Look at what he says. That the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Three different examples pointing us to this notion, this concept of headship. And I want you to notice that in these three examples, that everyone involved except God the Father finds themselves in a subordinate relationship, including the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Which that becomes a really important thing for us because a lot of times what we do is we get hung up on the second of these three things. But see, what God is doing is he's calling his people to something that is first modeled in the Trinity. God does never call you and I to something that he himself does not first do. 
So even Jesus is willingly subordinating himself to God the Father, right? If it's good enough for Jesus, it is most definitely good enough for you and I. And so I would ask you, as you look so often where people get bent, in fact, one of the reasons I didn't read the entirety of the text before praying is because there's a couple things in here that I didn't want you to just sit on and start spinning your wheels on without being able to just dive right into. Because where we get so bent, most of us don't have an issue with the first one. The second one, the head of a wife is her husband. In fact, I had someone tell me in between the services that they were at a conference once and they were talking about the issue of marriage and and, and, uh, they, they said, yeah, this woman came out into the hallway and they said, they just told me that I have to submit to my husband. I'll never do it. And then she stormed off. And I just said to the person telling me, I go, well, it's funny because they didn't tell her that. God actually told her that. I'm not sure if she made that connection or not, right? But this is, this is the culture that we live in. Don't you dare tell me what I can or can't do and who's over me. And so here's my question for you. Because I don't think it's ultimately a cultural thing. Is it possible? Is it possible that the, the driving issue for us and why we, we, we fight against and we get thorny with respect to these things isn't cultural, but maybe that the same pride that pervaded and perverted Adam and Eve's thinking in Genesis 3 is the same pride that's perverting and pervading you and I today. That I want to be God. I want to be in control. I don't want anyone telling me what I can or can't do. I don't think it's a cultural issue of equality. I think it's a spiritual issue of autonomy. That's what I think is at play. And so it's not just for women. This is for all of us. Because all of us have a tendency to fight against this notion. And, and, and Paul is teaching us not only about worship, but he's teaching us about ourselves and our willingness or our unwillingness to come under the headship of God in our lives. But this is why we have to see this argument in totality. Right? If you just see the first one or the second one and you fight against that, you miss what's undoubtedly the most profound and pointed aspect of this. That even Christ himself finds himself willingly in a subordinate relationship to the Father. And, and let me just make one other note on this, and then I promise we'll move forward. But, but one of the things we do in, in our current day and age is we confuse or we conflate position or authority. And we equate that to superiority or to value. That's not true. In fact, you'll notice there's no value, no dignity statements that are made of men or women in this part of the text. He's just talking about subordinate relationships. But what so often we want to do is we say, well, if you're in charge, you're, more, you're better. Nope, that, that's not biblical. That's a cultural thing that we do. It's not a biblical thing. And so don't conflate, don't confuse authority with superiority. God is pointing us to his headship in our lives. And it's God's good gift in seeing these different examples of headship that remind us, I'm not in control. You're not in control. God's in control. And so all of us find ourselves coming under his good headship. Secondly, look at verse 4, 5, and 6. We have God's good gift of headship, and then this is what we do with God's good gifts. As sinners, we distort them. And so we see our distortion of headship. Look at the text. 
Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, this is where having a working understanding of some of the cultural implications and some of the cultural dynamics becomes crucially important. Because here, here, I'll just, let's just talk about each side of these here for a moment. First of all, with men, right? He, he says this about men in verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Here's how I've always heard this verse taught. When you pray, men, take your ball cap off. Amen. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, it's not even close to what he's talking about. Now, as a sign of respect, it's probably not a bad thing. But here's what you have to understand. For a man to cover his head, and that would happen either with a physical covering or to grow his hair out long, it was eerily similar to the ways in which the pagan cults and the idolatrous cults would approach their gods. And so it became really confusing for the people. It was almost as if they were trying to assimilate the church with pagan gods. And so it's actually scandalizing the church and it's scandalizing Christ. And so what he's saying is, no, no, no. The distortion is that you would attempt to try to conjoin those two things. They have no part with one another. And then you look at women. Every wife who prays or prophesies. Now stop for a second. And and we'll unpack this further in a moment. Notice Paul's implication here. That women are active participants in the corporate gathering of the saints. That's radically different than anything that's going on in that day and age. Okay, so I just want you to see that because we're going to come back to it here in a minute. Okay, but we're, we're talking about the distortions. Every wife who prays or prophesies, just assume you're part of it, with her head covered or uncovered, dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So there's two different things that he's talking about here. A wife who has her hair uncovered or a woman who has her head shaved. Again, understanding the culture is really, really important. Because we tend to just think about hair length or what women should or shouldn't do uh, with their hair. That's not at all what's going on. For a woman to uncover her head, keep in mind, in the corporate gathering, and this is the freedom of God in, in, in allowing us to worship him in this way, but for a woman to uncover her head, that covering was, was, was probably the closest cultural equivalent would be like a wedding ring. And so what women are doing is they're showing up at worship and what they're, they're implicitly saying to all the guys is, hey, I'm available. No, you're not. No, you're not. Girlfriends, it would be like you going out with your girls, but you intentionally leave your ring at home. So the fellas that you run into are like, oh, wait, she's available. And so not only are they skewing even social norms, but also biblical norms, they're undermining the institution of marriage. He's like, don't do that. And if you were to do that, you, you might as well shave your head. Do you know who shaved their heads? Prostitutes. Prostitutes shave their heads. Do, do you see how these issues are undermining uh, the, the, the reality and the dynamic of what God's really after with respect to this? And, and so God's goodness and grace that brings about freedom and worship is paradoxically best captured in order and structure. And so, so again, what, what Paul's doing is he's helping them to see our place in God's rule, that this is not a free-for-all. Much like that classroom back in Muncie, Indiana, that the kids thought they were free, but in reality, it actually made it worse for them. Same for the church. And Paul's saying, 
to the church in Corinth and God's saying it to you and I here today. Who's in charge? Are you submitted to God? Right? Are you under him? Or are you trying to submit him to yourself? And from there, in verses 7 through 16, then Paul gets into theological reasons, theological arguments as to why headship is needed, necessary, why this is true. And so he almost kind of works backward, right? He gives the examples and the illustrations, and then he goes back to the foundational uh, dynamic of what's at play. In fact, I think there are three different arguments that he makes. Let me try to move through these quickly. First of all, look at verses 7 through 10. He says this in verse 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And then he finishes with this line, because of the angels. If you're looking for some deep insight from me with respect to the angels, I've got nothing for you. Okay? Uh, I don't know. That's just a mystery, and it's confusing. And the more I looked into it, the less I think I actually had any grip on it. So I'm not even going to touch that. And good luck with what you'll find on the Internet uh, with respect to that. That might be even scarier than just avoiding it. Anyway, uh, the point being that what you see here in verses 7 through 10 is Paul's making an argument from creation. I'm talking about image of God, creation. He's going back to the creative order. And he's connecting the image of God that we bear with God's headship over us. And so even in discussing the different dynamics that exist between men and women or male and female, we find that our source and our origin is ultimately rooted in and derived back to God. But further, what I think Paul is unfolding here, certainly we see this in Genesis 1 and 2, but I think he's actually filling this up a little bit uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, is that it's only in the fullness of both genders. Listen very carefully to me. It's only in the fullness of both genders that we see the totality of God being imaged by humanity. You can't do it with just men. You can't do it with just women. Not in totality. That there's a necessity of both sides. And creation is pointing us toward the headship and supremacy of God. And what Paul's hinting at there in verses 7 through 10, he says without reservation in verse 11 and 12. Look at what he says secondly. This argument of interdependency. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And I love this last line. And all things are from God. And so while Paul just made the point of the husband being the head over the wife, now he's making clear the necessity of both in relationship. Right? He's saying woman, Eve, may have originated from Adam, going back to the creation account, and God taking a rib out of Adam's side and forming and fashioning Eve. But every other man that's ever lived came from who? Came from a woman, right? And so you see this interdependency that begins to exist and really a beautiful dynamic at play. And what you have to understand is that was, that was completely foreign and unknown in that day. Because this is how people in that day and age thought about women. Women were viewed as property. They weren't human. And, and the, the, so when you go back to verse 5 and you see this notion of the full participation with women, you see this notion of interdependency that, that, that without woman, man is, is not really fully man, uh, right? It, it's just shocking. And then consider the other ways that it was playing out in that day and age. 
Right, so if you, if, you, if you were in Judaism and you went to the temple, how did that play out for you women? None of you would have been in this room. At best, you'd have been in the lobby behind a curtain. Passive observers of what's going on. That's the most a woman could hope for. And that was, that was far better than the cultic forms of worship, where women were exploited and taken advantage of as temple prostitutes. And so all of a sudden you look at Paul and right in our 21st century mindset, we're like, what is wrong with this guy? Well, in just a little bit of context, all of a sudden you're going, man, this is shockingly liberating for women. This full inclusion, this interdependency, this sharing that exists here. But then take that and compare it to God. See, we need one another. God doesn't need anyone or anything. And in that, right, this interdependency that exists between men and women points out the fact that God is interdependent upon no one, but he is needed by all. Pointing us back once again to God's headship and supremacy over us. And then in verses 13, 14, and 15, you see this third argument uh, deriving from nature. And and I won't get into it because I think there's some parallels with respect to creation, although there probably is some nuance. But for the sake of time, um, I'll let you be a noble Berean and dive a little bit deeper into that. I will make one point, though. In verse 15... He says, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering. And this is where a number of people will argue and say, God actually gives women a covering, which is why they don't need a physical covering today. And that's certainly a fair argument uh, that's derived right from the text. So what do we do with this? Right, lots of information. Uh, you can nerd out at some dinner party and be like, hey, did you actually know? But what, what does that really mean in your life in terms of what you and I should do with head coverings? So let me ask a couple of questions, then I'll actually answer the third question uh, with a couple things. And hopefully this is uh, somewhat applicable and helpful for us. First of all, should I wear a head covering? Okay, you ready? Maybe. Mike, that's not all at all helpful. I don't know what to tell you. Okay? Maybe. Right? You might read this, and for some of you, there might be a conviction from the Spirit that says, you should do this. And if that's true, then by all means, you should wear a head covering. Now, does that mean that you got to go all Laura Ingalls Wilder and come in here with some huge bonnet next week and just look totally out of place? No, I don't think it does. There are culturally appropriate ways to accomplish this. It might be just a hairband, or it might be something that you choose to do. It might even be something small, but in your mind you understand, I want to honor God in this. Romans 14 is incredibly helpful on, on matters of gray area where Paul talks about being fully convinced in your own mind. Paul actually says you can do something that's not wrong, but if you do it and you're not fully convinced that it's okay to do, you sin when you do it. And so if you're sitting here and you're like, oh, I'm not sure, then my encouragement to you is to wear a head covering until you're sure. Now, if you find yourself on the other side and you see it more of a, as a principled matter, uh, then by all means, then you don't need uh, to wear a head covering. But for all of us, we need to leave leeway and room for differing opinions and the fact that people are going to land in different spaces on this. Secondly, what does this mean for me? Like, what, what, what does this mean? At a minimum, it pushes us and reminds us of God's headship and authority in our lives. At the very least, if nothing else, 
regardless of what you choose to head coverings or not, or what you think you should encourage your wife or how you want to respond to your husband, if nothing else, you read the first half of 1 Corinthians 11 and you are reminded, yes, God is the head over me. And he has the freedom to say and do whatever he wants in my life. Number three, are there any cultural applications? There are. I think there are actually many. Let me give you two that I think are really necessary and needed for us and actually help us to think biblically around a number of items today. First of all, first of all, with respect to cultural applications, I think part of what we see unfolding in 1 Corinthians 11, that this is a call to celebrate, not flatten gender distinction. I think this is helpful for us, especially in today's day and age, right? We want to eliminate gender. We want it to be fluid. We want you to be able to just be whoever you feel like that particular day, or it's just this neutral thing. And yet what is unmistakably clear about what's going on in this text is it seems to highlight and to emphasize the significance and the importance of gender distinction, not, 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 not neutralize it. Now I'm all for getting rid of gender discrimination, By all means, we want to come against that. But in terms of distinction, I think this helps us to celebrate this. In fact, I came across this quote in my study this week. In one of the commentaries I was reading, I I thought this was so helpful. Gender distinctions are not a curse to be covered, but a blessing to be celebrated. And I would just argue that it's in both the male and the female that the image of God is fully bore out in humanity. We don't want to flatten that. We want to expand that. And we want to celebrate that. Praise God that he created both male and female. And this helps us to go, right, let's celebrate both sides of that. Secondly, I think that this is a call to embrace and not reject subordination. See, because our, our culture, really all of humanity, but we really see it in our society, in our day and age, we want to reject every sense of subordination or submission. We're going to stick it to the man. We want to fight the man. Like if anyone's in power, they're wrong, right? It's just, you're just wrong implicitly. And yet, unmistakably, what God's word is pushing us towards is a submission to God. I think for a lot of us, what what so often happens is we want a Genesis 3 life. I want to be God. I want to be in control. I want to change the rules. I want to change the way that this plays out. And I don't want anyone to tell me that I can't do it this way. And what God is saying is, that's cute. That's not how it works. You're wrong. I'm in charge. You're not. By the way, here are the rules. And what it comes back to is, are we going to fight that? Or are we going to willingly, joyfully, and enthusiastically embrace and accept that? And so unlike our culture, we want to embrace our subordination to Jesus, which is for our good. See, here's, here's the lie that our culture can't put their finger on. Is what we think, and by we, I mean generically the totality of our society. And most of you, or if not all of you, don't believe this. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting in church on a Sunday morning. But what our culture thinks is... if. I can get out from under the the submission of Christ. Then I'm free. No, you're a fool. Because you just traded a gracious and kind and loving father who's over you for a tyrannical and inept culture. Only a fool makes a trade like that. 
See, what our culture can't figure out is you are submitted and subjected to someone or something. It's just a matter of who. I would far rather submit to a loving, gracious, humble, kind father than the inept, tyrannical, dysfunctional culture of our day, which three years from now might have to change anyway, at least with God. I know nothing's changing. We worship under the headship of God. We okay? All right, deep breath. Here we go. Second half of the section. Talking about men and women. Everyone gets freaked out. Like, oh, what's going to happen? We're still all here. All right. I was kind of hoping Jesus would come back, but that didn't happen either. So, oh, well, I'm hoping for that anyway, but that would have been really nice this morning. All right, second half. Here we go with respect to the Lord's Supper. And we've really laid the foundation uh, and the groundwork around the notion of authority and headship. So this will move a little bit quickly. Uh, but I just wrote this down. We worship in community, remembering Christ. Right, the, the goal of the, of the Lord's table, and as we come to that here uh, in, in just a few moments, uh, that's really the goal, that we worship in community and remembrance of Christ. Uh, three things that we see here uh, in that. First of all, look at uh, verses 17 through 22, and I, I'm going to read what's going on in the church. And I want you to just, just try to rate in your mind, how dysfunctional is this church, right? Scale of 1 to 10. So just think about that as I read this. Here we go. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. That's not a good opening line, by the way. Uh, Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe that in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He's like, I'm not sure what's going on, but that's not God's thing. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. All right. Scale of 1 to 10, how dysfunctional is this church? Tell me. 10, you're pretty gracious. The first service, it was 11 or 12, okay? I mean, th- these guys are messed up. We worship in community remembering Christ. I wrote this down for this section. We seek unity in our community, which is the antithesis of what the Corinthians are doing. Like, they're on the other end of the spectrum. We, we, we seek selfish pursuit uh, in our own lives, right? And, and notice all the ways that Paul is talking about division here uh, in, in terms of their approach to the Lord's Supper. <laughs> it's not for the better, but for the worse, right? There's divisions among you. This is not the Lord's Supper. You despise the church. You're humiliating your brothers and your sisters. I mean, on and on he goes with all of the dysfunction and all of the issues and all the ways that they're just messing this thing up. And what was supposed to be the source of unity and oneness served to further separate and alienate the people of God from one another. See, because here's how the Lord's table or the Lord's Supper played out in that day and age. First of all, it was, it was not like ours where, you know, you eat your little piece of bread and your little cup and, and whatnot. It was more like a potluck. 
And everyone would come together and they would gather together and they would share a meal with one another. But, but their society wasn't totally unlike our society in that the, the, the wealthy or the more elite of their day and age had a little more flexibility with their schedule, a little more leeway in what's going on. So they would start showing up. Of course, someone's hosting this. And so you got to have a decent-sized home. And, and so one of the wealthier members is hosting this. And the other wealthy members would show up early. And they would all sit down in the dining room and they'd just start eating with one another. And all the stuff that they brought to share was definitely the, the, the finer foods. And so they're enjoying all that, all the fine food and all the fine drink. I mean, this is crazy, right? They're getting drunk with one another. True confessions. Anyone ever been to a church function where someone's loaded? Like on purpose, part of the church function? Anybody? Right? So like we don't even have a context for how dysfunctional this is. They're showing up for communion and they're blitzed. It's nuts. But so as the wealthy are doing this, the, the, the working class is getting off and they're making their way uh, to, to, to this gathering, but there's no room for them in the dining room. So they're relegated to the courtyard, except there's no food and no drink out there. So let, let me just try to contemporize this here for a moment. Let's say that we're having a potluck, right? And we're going we're, we're gonna to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper and you roll into the multi-purpose room, but there's no tables of food, right? It's just going to be on the table. And so like off in the corner, there's one table and there's a handful of people sitting around. There's lobster and sushi and shrimp and fine wine, like all the good stuff. And, and of course, right, they're loaded. So, so they've, they've finished multiple bottles of wine and you're like, okay, I kind of want to eat there, but don't really want to participate in some of the other stuff that's going on there. Uh, and then you look around at all the other tables and it's like a stick of butter and some sugar packets. <laughs> Which someone told me after service, you know, that actually makes frosting. So maybe that's not the worst thing, okay? But, but uh, right, there's just not much on the table. And you see how divided. You, 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 you see the stratification. See, the cross of Jesus, the death, burial, and resur- resurrection of Jesus is a place, or at least it should be a place of equal standing for the people of God. It's the great equalizer. But that wasn't happening in Corinth. There's all kinds of division. There's all kinds of stratification. There's alienation of brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this is an absolute distortion of what it is to remember Jesus, which is why Paul is saying, this is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And here we are once again, back at the heart of the issue. The Corinthians want to do their thing, not God's thing. See, if we're going to, Be under the headship of Christ. There's a community aspect that unites us, not by social lines, but along gospel lines. And so what does this mean for us? Church, this means that you and I have to be willing to invite and to share our homes and to share our tables and to share seats in our homes with people that don't look like us, people that don't earn what we earn, people who have different political affiliations, Right? The, 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 the demarcation is not along social lines. The demarcation is along the lines of the gospel. It means that I'm willing to open up my home. It's, it means that I'm willing to ensure that I'm right with, with brothers and sisters in the body and that I'm working to remedy that if uh, that's not the case. Seek unity in our community. Notice this secondly, verse 23 through 26. That we remember Christ's work collectively. There's a communal aspect to this. It's not just me and God. 
Look at what Paul says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And I've just never seen the distinction until this week uh, that in verses 23 through 25, Paul is focused on the finished work of Christ. But look at where he goes in verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In verse 26, he's pointing us to the future work of Christ. So, so we see both this, this looking back at the finished work of Christ, but, but this confident building, uh, a look ahead to the, to the future work, the victorious uh, return and reign of Christ that's yet to come. So let's just look at verses 23 through 25 for a moment. We remember Christ's completed work. And, and here Christ is calling the church to remember Notice that. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He's saying, remember this. Why? Because he wants to bring back to their mind time and time again what he has accomplished, what he has finished. That that, that when when we come to the table... Well, now let me just... Church, what do you have? What do you have if you don't have the finished work of Christ? You've got nothing. Total, absolute loss. Three weeks from today is Easter Sunday. Now, now I, I've been in, in pastoral ministry long enough to know that people just show up a little more geeked up on Easter Sunday than most other Sundays of the year. And, and maybe it's because there's a continental breakfast or popcorn or you get to take a picture or you're really excited about what you're going to eat for lunch. But here's what I think actually happens. I think that what we do collectively is we remember the finished work of Jesus throughout the week. So we get to Sunday and we're like, I got to let it out. And so we're just really geeked up and excited about that. But could you imagine if you showed up in three weeks and there's no death, no burial, no resurrection of Jesus? I mean, how miserable would that be? Hey, we're here to remember the fact that we've got no savior and no hope. Let me play a dirge and let's go home and be miserable. I mean, that's how it would play. But praise God, that's not the truth, right? That hopeless thought is not our reality. And so the death, burial, and resurrection is not something that we, you and I just need at the point of salvation. It's not something that we just need on Easter Sunday. We desperately need that right now. And so when God, or when Jesus is saying, you need to remember this. He's helping us to remind ourselves of all that God has done. He's, he, he's helping us to remember that we've been redeemed, that we can marvel at God's adoption of us, that, that we can be overwhelmed at the fact that God continues to cleanse me from every sin in my life, that God declares me to be righteous in his sight, that when I stand before God at the judgment seat, he'll say righteous because of Christ's finished work. That's what he wants us to remember when we come. See, the importance of remembrance. There's something profound that happens when we, re- when we remember. In fact, if you look back in the Old Testament, God built this into the people of God. Think about all their feasts and all their festivals. God was always calling them to remember things. Right? Passover. People, I want you to remember how I delivered you from the bondage of the Egyptians. And of course, they're all typological of what Christ would do. 
and how I'm going to free you from the bondage of your sin. Or the Feast of Booths. I want you to remember how as you sojourn through the wilderness, that I love what it says in Deuteronomy, that their shoes didn't even wear out. I've got teenagers, man. It's like you get six weeks through a pair of shoes. You're like, praise God, that's a miracle. Forty years. Shoes didn't wear out. Not only that, but not just a temporary home, but I'm going to give you a permanent home. You think about the Day of Atonement, right? And the two goats. And they would slaughter one and the, the death of one would atone for the sin of the people. But, but as rich as that metaphor is, that, that they would take the blood from the one goat, they would put it onto the other goat, and they would send that goat out into the wilderness. Why? Because it wasn't just the atonement of, of the sin, but that God was sending the sin as far as the east is from the west from his people. Even the weekly rhythm of Sabbath and the reminder of rest, but that an eternal rest is coming And I think even there's a sense within Sabbath that a a restoration of the creative order. See, God built in remembrance. Why? Why? Why did God build in remembrance? I think God builds in remembrance that as I look back at God's faithfulness and I see God's providence and care, it gives me trust and faith as I look to the future of what God's going to do. And so it gives perspective to our lives. That's what the table is. This is the New Testament version of everything I've just said. Really all of it wrapped up in one. And so we remember Christ's completed work. We look forward to Christ's future work. Verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So not only do I look back, but I actually get a look ahead. I got to look to the future work of what Christ is going to do, that, that I can celebrate that. And really, I think what it does is it, it helps us to hold fast, that it gives us a hope. It helps us to persevere and, and to press on because I know a day is coming when my Savior will be victorious in totality. And that's what we look forward to. So we remember Christ's work collectively. Finally, this, look at verses 27 to 34, and just briefly, let me touch on a couple things here, but I think what Paul is encouraging the church in, right, in this community remembering Christ is that we're to discern the body in totality. And I think there's actually an interplay between the individual and the corporate dynamics that, it, that that's at play, that it's not just, hey, I'm good with God, but am I good with one another? Are we good with one another? And are we good with God? I think that's a huge piece of what's at play. Look at what he says. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So this sober reminder of what's at stake. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And I think what he's saying there in verse 32 is similar to what we saw back in chapter 5 where that guy is sinning uh, in that sexual relationship with his stepmom. And and it's cast him over to Satan so that his soul will be spared. And it's the soul care that's deeper than just... What's right in front of us? Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Wouldn't you love to know what the other things are? It's like, wait, wait, what are the other things? Nope. 
Not for us. We'll trust that Paul dealt with them and that we didn't need to hear about them. But we discern the body in totality. Just real quick, I want you to notice the progression, the the, the part of this text that tends to be really tricky for people. Notice the, the progression, right? There's a failure to discern. So you drink judgment upon yourself. And then, right, this uh, verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. It's like, what is going on here? But I think Paul's coming back to where he started. And here's his point. It's not about you and your authority. It's about God and his authority. You're not submitting to what God has called you to. And there are consequences for that. Right, what happens, what happens for men and women who repeatedly, habitually reject and rebel against God, good, God's good commands for them in their lives? Like that never ends well. I did a funeral here yesterday afternoon for Joe Carlson. Now Joe lived a relatively long life, 93 years, which is a breath in eternity. It's like that. And yet, listen, you and I are all going to find ourselves on the wrong end of a funeral one day. You won't be present. You won't show up. You won't get invited because you'll be the person the funeral's about. And the same will be true for me. And when that happens, you and I will stand in judgment before God. And this is part of what communion is helpful for for us. It's to remind us of, of a judgment that we deserve, which is why we discern the body. And more importantly, we remember the finished work of Christ. And that what we deserve is not what we're going to get because of God's kind and gracious work. And so as we discern the body, it requires that we discern it through the lens of the gospel, not some moralistic, behavioral, dead religion. And so let's come to the table. And as we come to the table, let me just maybe ask you a couple of questions. First of all, are you coming under the authority and the headship of God? Are you submitted to him? Right? Are you seeking unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you remembering his finished work on the cross? Are you looking forward to his future work and him being victorious in that and hanging tightly to that? Are you discerning the body? Are you understanding the nature of what God has spared us from? See, this is how we're to come together. That we're to come together. That we're to be unified. That we're to remember. That we're to discern. That we're to celebrate this. And so as we come to the table, a couple of things, and then I'll release you all to come and grab the elements and we'll partake together. Uh, But at Faith Church, we practice what's called an open communion which means you don't have to be a member of the church to participate, but we would ask that you would be a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of his, that you would just respectfully abstain. Although we think a far better solution would be for you to give your life over to Jesus and willingly participate uh, with us. But for those who are followers, three tables up front, and because of trying to figure out uh, this back area, there's one table in the back. Maybe this will become uh, the new norm for us. A gluten-free option up here if you need that. But church, let us come. Let us come to the table with all that's in mind and all that God has spoken to us, uh, seeking unity in our community, remembering Christ's work collectively, discerning our body. And so as you come uh, to the elements, grab them, take them back with you, and then we will partake uh, collectively here in just a moment. Let's come to the table.